Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week, we're chatting with Lisa Parker, who's the director and founder of Parker Buyers Advocates. She's a buyers agent and someone with an extreme amount of industry experience and knowledge. So she shares some fantastic advice on how to select a buyers agent, the different buyers agents available and their approaches and how they fit to a client's brief, and just some fundamentals on how to make sure that you are selecting the right property and not falling foul of some of the typical mistakes. She's got some great insights and tips on how to avoid overpaying, how to deal with an unlevel playing field when you're transacting in property, bait pricing, and more. Without further ado, here's Lisa. Lisa Parker, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mike. I really, really love to uh, participate in this and uh, looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it for a while and I've been following lots of your social media with interest. One of my particular favorite things is your husband Lachlan reviews audio equipment and normally you say something along the lines of, I have no idea what it does, but he seems really excited. So, you know, check it out. (laughs) Those are always fantastic. Sometimes I'm forced into into the throne and have to trial a few of his different headsets and give him my feedback, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. I, 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 I said these are crap, and they were a sixteen hundred dollar pair of um, headphones. Yikes! <laughs> and I wow. said these ones are better, and they were apparently a five thousand dollar pair of headphones. So <laughs> I've had the same issue tasting bottles of wine. It's, uh, <laughs> you, can put your, you, can, you can really put your foot in it. Anyway, at least for anyone that hasn't had the pleasure of um, of your husband's audio channel or any of your um, social media, could you let us know who you are and what you specialise in? Yeah, of course. Well, um, I'm obviously Lisa Parker and I'm a buyer's advocate in Melbourne and have been working um, in uh, as a buyer's advocate coming up to my, I think I'm in my 16th or 17th year this year, just a few months away from celebrating either 16 or 17 um, years in the industry. And prior to that, I worked in various other um, sectors of the industry before getting into buyer advocacy. Yeah, and some of those, I guess, uh, have some good parallels in in the real estate game anyway. So I definitely want to sort of touch on that. But give us some more background into the young Lisa Parker. What posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Well, I don't think I was allowed to put posters on the wall, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Very militaristic upbringing. Yes. Yes, no, I don't think we're allowed to put anything on the wall at home. Um, I don't know that I would actually put a poster on the wall, though. Um, I think back then I was heavily into reading books. I, I, I would devour a book within a night, maybe two if yep. it was extra long. Um, so, yeah, it was probably more what was on my, my bookshelves. And I think there was a series back when I was a teenager called The Babysitter's Club or something like that that I was trying oh, yes. to <laughs> I, rem- I remember that one. I didn't never had the pleasure myself because that was sort of seen as a bit too feminine for a, yeah. for a lad. Um, but yeah, that was a big one uh, around the same time as Goosebumps and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm, yeah, it was it was a bit of a female thing that that series. But um, yeah, in any book, obviously <laughs> that they sent home from school, like The Hobbit, and you know all the ones we all would have read the same ones. So, what about property? How did you get started, and what was your first investment, Lisa? Yeah, so um, I got started at the tender age of about six when it was indoctrinated <laughs> into me around the kitchen table. I had um, parents who were 
we're very um, interested in property. And so every week we gathered around the, the family kitchen table with the two local newspapers that were delivered on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And um, my parents would flip through the newspapers and we'd go through the real estate section. They would continually comment on this suburb's going up, this suburb's going down. You know, they've just released land here. And there was just all this commentary. So, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was a part of those conversations sitting at the table pretending to look through the paper and point <laughs> things out to mum and dad. And then that continued throughout my entire childhood and along with the uh, monthly visit to different display homes where we'd spend a whole day looking at different display villages. <laughs> wow. I know. So full, full childhood then? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, we did other regular things like go to the Easter show, which uh, is a Sydney thing in, in Melbourne. It's the Melbourne show, but I grew up in Sydney. And um, Dad's a bricklayer, so he often brought the plans to homes, um, home with him and, again, we were around the kitchen table, you know, analysing the floor plan and, you know, the build costs and things like that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I guess I was groomed for this at a very, very, very early age. And then I commenced my career, uh, at about 17, I started working for a developer in a part-time capacity. And, um, that was extremely exciting to me and it really inspired me and got under my skin. And I, I guess that's really where it took off. Mum and dad would have been pretty chuffed that you went in that direction too, right? Yeah, well, I don't think they really realised their own passion for it. To be honest, um, yeah, I don't, don't, don't think they they realised kind of what they were doing, like with all of the commentary and stuff like that. But um, yeah, they've been they've been quite proud of the um, achievements and and my progress. So, so, so talk us to talk to us about the the progress. So, starting with the developer, and then I I know you also have some experience and background as a as an investment advisor prior to to starting a career as a BA. What what did you learn in those positions that sort of helped you with your I guess what you do now? Yeah, um, yeah. There were quite a few roles that I think really um, shaped me and helped me to. Uh, become a buyer's advocate and I, and I genuinely feel like this role I was destined to do this role and before I knew it was a role it was in my heart of hearts what I always wanted to do I just didn't know that it existed mm. and my colleagues at the time would mock me saying well nobody's going to pay you for independent advice and at the time I was working in a scenario which um, you'd be familiar with and, you know, probably many of your listeners would, would have an awareness of as well. And it's a really important thing for those who haven't, um, you know, got the awareness to really pay attention to this aspect of the industry where um, financial planners and accountants refer clients into developer stock. Yes. And that was where I moved into before I moved into buyer advocacy. I worked for a financial planning firm in their property division and we ran education seminars and uh, went out to people's homes and taught them how they could save tax through um, investing in property. And um, I was very, very successful and climbed that ladder quite quickly. Um, I was very, very eager to learn. I was spending a lot of time reading, devouring books, going to seminars. And I quickly became aware that we weren't providing an honest service that was based yep. on people's best interests. 
and that what we were really doing was educating people to buy a product for which we earned a commission for. And yeah. commission- that, that must have been a hard realisation for you, right? Because, I mean, you'd reached some level of success and you're sort of thinking, well, everything that I've done so well at is maybe not a good fit with my own personal ethics. Yeah, well, I guess as soon as I came to that realisation, um, I'm the kind of person that um, if it's not right, it's not right. And I can't, no, I, morally, I can't stay in a situation that I don't agree with. So I remove myself pretty quickly. And that's what, exactly what I did um, before becoming a buyer's advocate. So as soon as it was no longer a fit and I, and I could really see with clarity what, what we were actually doing there, I left and I thought that I was going to make a career change and leave the industry altogether because that's how disappointed I felt and, you know, that's how um, I didn't want to be a part of it. And I went away for a holiday for two weeks, came back, and my phone was ringing with people wanting help. And that's really how I fell into buyer advocacy with was my re- my phone ringing. I had no intention of um, of starting a business and I – you know, had the phone ringing with people wanting help. And I also at the same time found out about this thing called buyer advocacy, which was pretty underground at the time. And the day that I found out about buyer advocacy was the day that I knew I'd found my calling. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. And I suppose anyone that's come across you or or seen you on social media or anything like that would be able to tell very quickly that it seems like the perfect fit for you. You're extremely passionate about it. Obviously, that very nerdy upbringing is important. (laughs) And I think think people that really nerd out in their area of specialization are, are, are the best operators. You want to be able to sort of pay someone that spent their life dedicated to a particular nerdy thing so you don't have to worry about it yourself. Yeah. Um, I think that probably describes that um, that level of expertise pretty well. You, now, being in the game for, as you say, coming up 17 years, what have you observed that's changed in, in real estate, the way that we sort of buy and transact since you started? Yeah, I think, um, you know, back when I first started, real estate agents, you know, were a little bit cowboyish. And anything kind of went and there was a lot of interesting characters in real estate. And I think if if we look at it honestly and um, reflect back then, I think people who, who wanted to make a lot of money but didn't necessarily have the education behind them to support a higher paying role would move into real estate to earn um, a higher wage than they would say in a blue collar job. Whereas today what we see is a lot of really high-performing, extremely professional people who have such dedication and excitement for the industry and for their craft and are investing in themselves through mentors and through courses and through choosing the right agencies to work for um, to get that mentoring and support and personal development and I see a big contrast with the types of people that are attracted to the industry and also just the professional behaviour and standards. Um, in Melbourne anyway, I'm not, I don't know too much about other states, but definitely in Melbourne we've got such a high calibre of people um, and it's really inspiring. So I think that's probably the biggest change that I've seen. The other change that I've seen is um, consumers' access to information has increased considerably mm. and... People can access information a lot easier and so it's a lot harder now for 
agents to be completely deceitful because there's so much information available on the internet that once wasn't available. Yes, you can, for example, go and see what the property might be, be, you might be looking at sold for previously or do, you know, comparative analysis and that sort of stuff. That that sounds like a, a good thing in that regard. Does that make your job as a buyer's agent a little bit more difficult that people can can do that sort of research themselves a bit like, you know, Dr. Google, you go to the doctor with a cough and you've already figured out that you've got coronavirus. (laughs) I think it comes down to the person and their personal experience. So sometimes the access to information can be a detriment to some people and to other people it can be uh, something that's very, very useful. So for clients that are analysing and interpreting the data correctly, it makes my job a lot easier. For those who don't um, understand how to interpret the data or how to use it or how to apply it, because I, I guess the funny thing in with funny thing with real estate is that almost nothing about it is black and white. We're constantly working in a grey area, and there are so many subtleties and tangibles that we have to pull together and analyse holistically to give the right advice. When you don't have the depth of experience to lean on to understand those subtleties, we tend to look at things at a very surface level and we're not picking up the nuances and so we're drawing uh, the wrong conclusions. And so that can be detrimental to buyers, particularly if they're out on their own. Um, They don't have somebody to help them interpret the data or, or combine the data with real life on the ground experience so that they have a a better picture so yeah I guess it kind of goes both ways yeah and I suppose it can be a real quagmire for if you're navigating it yourself without the help of a buyer's agent as well just sticking with BAs just as more of a general question it seems that they sort of fit into two camps there's some that focus on chasing property across the country looking at the growth areas or the hot spots as it were and then there's the the area specialist which I think and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth that would be your category can you give us in some insights into the positives and negatives of each approach yeah sure I, I think it's an interesting one and they're definitely negatives and positives but I think to override the negatives um, having the right professional is probably going to be you know what's going to override the negatives but if we just dive into um, the positives to start with um, I think one of the, the positive aspects to it is that people who are working nationwide have uh, greater access to understand different markets So they're in a position to match a client's needs with different markets. So, for example, if the client is needing a higher yielding purchase, Melbourne is not necessarily the best option for them. There are other places around the country that offer a higher yield Um, and also price point. So in Melbourne, depending on the, the asset that the person is trying to purchase, it's very, very difficult to get house and land, house on a piece of land for Uh, under $500,000 if you want to stay metro, where there are other states that offer entry prices lower than $400,000 or, you know, lower than $500,000. So I think that diversity is a positive for investors. And if somebody is across the economic, um, the economics that are happening in those states and also the pipeline of stock and 
you know, have they have all of that information at hand. I think it's a really valuable asset for somebody who wants to grow a portfolio and also diversify. So they're diversifying their, their uh, land tax and also their cash flow. Um, they're offsetting perhaps higher capital growth properties in Melbourne that don't carry that cash flow. Um, yep. So I think that's the positive. And I think there's a few negatives and I think this overcoming the negatives really comes down to choosing a genuine professional with genuine experience. Um, there's a few little things that happen behind the scenes in, in property that consumers probably don't have any visibility of and that's the way that certain organisations work when they're purchasing interstate so some perch, some companies will fly in once a month and purchase for anywhere between 10 to 20 clients. And in markets that are moving, that is a very, very, very difficult thing to do because stock sells within the week if it's a private sale. Yeah. Um, so what they do to overcome that is they ask the real estate agents to reserve stock for them and not put it on the market. And in return for them doing that, they agree to pay the asking price of the vendor. And sometimes there's been cases where they've paid beyond the asking price just to be able to secure secure property. So in areas like uh, Corio, for example, down near Geelong in Melbourne, um, it was that was one of the areas where this was happening and people were pay, overpaying for property by $20,000. Now, one of the roles of a buyer advocate is obviously to assist with the negotiations and accurately um, price a property. As one thing, if a client is fully understanding that they're paying ten or $20,000 more to secure an opportunity by choice versus perhaps not realising that that's what's happening. And there are consequences to that, to the investor. So I think choosing uh, somebody with that integrity who's flying in and being quite choosy about the areas, the streets and the stock that they're selecting for their, their clients and also not having 10 to 20 people that they're buying for in one go. So if I've got 20 people with the same brief, who am I giving the best opportunity to and who am I giving the worst opportunity to? Mm, yeah, that, that's a tricky one. That's, I guess, from from the buyer's agent perspective in, in that instance, the client's probably going to rate them poorly on the amount of time that it takes to secure the property rather than the asset themselves, especially if they're time poor and they don't know that they're paying above market or they're not negotiating strongly. So there's a that's a tricky little sort of... I guess um, an incentive for the buyer's agent to to operate that way, but it's not in the interest of the client, as you say. Mm. And I think it really comes down to choosing the right either individual buyer advocate who is um, taking on a small amount of clients at one time um, or an organisation who has systems for working that out and, and they're flying in and flying out on a very regular basis, not just once a month. Um, so I think the, the selection of a buyer's advocate becomes even more critical when it's a nationwide um, advocacy firm. Um, the, other, the other risks I think are there is that some of these advocates are not actually buying, they're buying sight unseen and that poses a risk to the client and the client may as well have just bought it themselves sight unseen. Yes. Um, so that's another risk. And then the third risk, I think, is um, a lot of the 
a lot of the bioadvocates who are doing this are relying on uh, research firms to provide them with the data and pinpoint the areas and streets and properties they should be buying. Um, but I do think that needs to be backed up with somebody flying in and eyeballing the asset. Um, and we've heard a few stories in the industry where it hasn't panned out particularly well and things have been overlooked because the buyer advocate didn't fly in and physically look at the property. Yes, and it's things like that that I think uh, perhaps putting you in the spotlight for a Royal Commission, which would be a disaster for the good operators. Um, but yeah. yeah un Unfortunately, there's some of that stuff going on. O on that topic, we've actually had a, uh, a listener, Melissa, shout out to Melissa, ask, uh, would, would we discuss how to pick a buyer's agent and what questions to ask and what to look out for? I think we've, we've sort of covered some of the what to look out for, but are there particular questions that you could recommend asking a buyer's agent? To, to get sort of a, a good answer as to why they're the best person to be working with? Yeah, look, I think um, it would be very, very difficult to cover that in this session um, <laughs> because it is such a deep topic um, to, del to delve into. And I, I've run, you know, an hour training session on this and I've written a book on the topic and which hopefully captures everything. Um, but to, to, to come up with something that fits the segment that we've got today um, I think obviously the, the critical things is ensuring that the person is adequately licensed and there are search engines where you can check somebody's license. Um, on that note, there are a lot of buyer advocates out there who are not licensed and don't realise that they need to be. So a lot of people are starting up businesses from their own home and they just like real estate and they're operating as real estate agents without uh, getting their license and understanding the legislation. And um, that's firstly against the law, but secondly puts the buyer at a lot of risk and there's no insurance in place to cover them if they make a mistake. Um, so it's very, very important to ensure that the uh, buyer's agent is licensed in the state that they're purchasing in and secondly, that they hold adequate insurance. So if they do make a mistake, that you're going to be covered in that transaction should you suffer a financial uh, loss as a result of that yep. mistake. And I think lastly, I think it's really important to gauge genuine experience. We've seen a lot of newcomers, um, you know, pop up over the last couple of years and uh, we're seeing websites that look incredibly, incredibly professional and fantastic. Um, and, you know, we've seen people advertising that, they, that they're the, you know, most experienced advocate in Melbourne. But when you actually research their background, they've had a background in completely different careers and they've never actually worked in the real estate industry. So unfortunately, it's very, very easy to look good on the outside, but it's important for consumers to really check if they've got the substance to back it up. And um, there's, that, that's probably going to require <clears throat> some intuition, gut yep. instincts and clever questioning. Um, I think somebody with knowledge, you can, you can really tell when somebody has the genuine experience and you can also ask very specific questions. And I think when you ask specific questions, if you don't feel like you're getting a very specific answer back that answers the question, keep digging. And I think that's where people will reveal who is bluffing and who actually has the genuine experience. And that genuine experience is really um, the most important thing when you hire an advocate 
because they've done, you know, 50 transactions a year and I'm still learning. I learned something new last week or the week before. I still learn in my transactions even though I've been doing this for such a long time. So um, that experience all leads up to uh, a buyer's advocate giving better quality advice, um, being savvier, uh, helping people avoid situations because they've they've lived through it. You know, they've had the transactions that haven't gone so well and they've learned from that. Whereas yep. somebody who doesn't have that exposure, you're really le- they're really learning on your time and on your dime, which is completely fine if you are if you are a willing participant in that transaction. Yeah, I think that's right. If that's known to you and you want to accept that or take on the risks or be beta tested, then then what, what, whatever. But um, yeah, I guess masquerading as someone with experience um, that's not actually true is, is terrible. Um, and I think you're right. If you ask the right questions or just ask detailed questions, you can tell fairly quickly over the phone if someone is reading from a script or they've you know, encountered these issues before. So I think that's really good advice that we don't really tend to do. I was I was chatting to a, I think it was a osteopath recently, and I said, do, does anyone ever sort of say, you know, have you had experience in this type of injury before, and have you have you have you, you know, come across these t- types of issues? And that, and because they're an expert in their field, they actually said, look, I, I wish people would ask that because I can show my area of expertise rather than just people booking from a website. So um, I, I know that you'd be the sort of person to welcome any sort of question. Mm. So you're, of course, very, very passionate about what you do in looking after your clients. Uh, there's some key mistakes that you see particularly investors make when they're purchasing? Yeah, we do. Um, we see a lot of different mistakes out on the field, you know, fairly regularly. And um, there's a few that probably spring to mind that are that are very, very consist- consistent. And um, I think the first mistake for uh, people buying who don't have a lot of experience buying property um, is that I think we fall into the trap of feeling like we know and understand property because we all live in one, we've all been, you know, we've all grown up in one and Australia does have a bit of a love affair with property. So it's obvious, it's often a topic of conversation in the newspaper, TV, barbecues, etc. And so there's a familiarity with property that gives people a certain amount of comfort um, when they go looking for property. And with that comes an overly simplistic view of the buying process. What people don't understand is that there's a lot of psychology and a lot of tactics and a lot of strategy that goes into every single listing. If you're, if you, if a vendor has listed with a savvy real estate agent, every single micro detail has been considered to run a successful campaign to get the highest possible price for the vendor. And buyers don't understand necessarily what those things are. And so they're playing a role in a game that don't necessarily understand the rules or the objectives for. So I think that's the first thing is that understanding that what you see as a buyer, um, particularly if you've only done one or two transactions in your life, is just the tip of the iceberg and there's this whole other world going on underneath. So um, the first thing is, you know, not to underestimate uh, how complex real estate actually is. 
Yeah, and and as you say, you might have done one or two transactions and you're dealing with a relationship that is geared to the vendor, right? Every interaction you have with a real estate agent is someone not necessarily acting in your interests. So Mm. I see tremendous value in having an advocate on your side. What difference can a buyer's agent make from a negotiation perspective, say, compared to someone that's done one or two transactions and, and, you know, watches the block so they feel like they've got a good idea about the Australian property market? Yeah, well, that's a really, really good question. Um, And there's a lot of differences. Um, I've got a client at the moment who has engaged my services just to negotiate on their behalf and has opted not to receive any consulting with that. And they've, I've actually gone beyond my scope of what I've been employed to do and what I'm being paid to do because in good consciousness, I couldn't let this buyer continue to walk forward with what they were walking into um, because they feel like they have everything under control. They, they know enough about property. They know what they're doing. They think they've got all the answers in place. Um, but they're actually about to walk into an extremely risky transaction and they don't know any better. Um, so I think that it's a really good example of, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people um, buy, buy real estate and feel very, very, very happy with their outcome, but they don't know the risks that they actually expose themselves to through um, that transaction and they just got lucky. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think um, we, we obviously bring the experience to foresee issues and prevent them from becoming a huge expensive mistake. Um, there's probably a few other things. I think one of the biggest differences is how a professional uh, values real estate compared to a person off the street is very, very different. So there are about six components that we look at when we're assessing the value of a property. Um, things such as stock levels, scarcity value, how, how strongly is the property matched to the buyer's needs, uh, how often is that property going to become available, what are other buyers thinking and doing and what are their situations and what are their budgets? How does the agent usually work? What are their tactics and what are the market conditions? So we're bringing all of that together to come to a conclusion about what a property is worth and what a property is likely to sell for, which are two different things. And so there's a conversation around, you know, the value of a property versus what a client should or shouldn't pay for the property. Um, that's that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and um, I understand that there's been some dodgy behaviour, for want of a better expression, around some of the pricing. So that just goes to show that there's there's obviously a gap between what an advertised price is and what the end price is, and that's where there's some expertise you can bring to the table, right? Yeah, and I think we'll probably touch on that in a minute as well, and go a little bit deeper into that because it's something that we're asked all the time. Um, The other couple of things that we bring to the table when negotiating uh, is just understanding the agent. So um, we keep an agent's database. And so when we have different buyer advocates working for us, they're reporting and keeping ledgers on their interactions with various agents. So if they... uh, If somebody else is working with that agent, they can look up in our database and know what the agent's tactics are And when you work with an agent multiple times, you know what their tactics are and Mm -hmm. 
that can become very, very, very useful because you can counter those tactics with your own approach and being more strategic in your approach to the negotiation. And strategy around negotiation is extremely important. I think a lot of buyers without representation don't give a lot of thought to strategy. So we usually are thinking um, we're going to do this. They're probably going to do that. When they do that, we're going to do A. If they don't do that and they do this instead, then we're going to do B and we've got C and D as a backup. So we're thinking about multiple different outcomes and what we're going to do in each of those outcomes. And so it's we're bringing a, a certain amount of strategy to the table when we're approaching it. It's not guesswork. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the way that an agent inter- would interact with you as opposed to me would be completely diff- different, right? Because they would assume that with my level of understanding, they might be able to pull the wool over my eyes. With you, they're going to go, oh, the normal tactic that I use is, is not going to work. Uh, yeah. So there'd be a different different way that they communicate with you. And, of course, that extra level of preparedness holds you in good stead. Yeah, look, it is a very, very different conversation. It's professional to professional. Um, a lot of the time the agents will tell us outright information that they wouldn't necessarily um, divulge to a to a buyer off the street. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a very, very different relationship. And they some of them will try to treat us like buyers off the street and unfortunately it ruins the relationship because I think personally and professionally it's disrespectful to try to pull the wool over another professional's eyes because mm. they know what we know unless they're less less experienced in the industry and they're just finding their way so you can't treat somebody like a dummy if they've got the same knowledge as you um so i think real estate agents have to be careful and even with dealing with savvy buyers off the street because there are some really good great smart savvy buyers out there as well um, I think you just lose credibility really fast if you try to get away with, um, you know, not not being honest about things. So what we find in Victoria, um, and one of the things that if you're an advocate who really goes out of their way to forge good relationships with, with agents, they will just tell you everything that you need to know and then we can provide that information to our clients so they can make informed decisions. Yeah, there's tremendous value in that, of course. Now the the psychology of selling, I imagine, is potentially a whole episode and perhaps in your book as well, which we should give a plug for at the end. But can you give us some insights into how you read people during the auction, say, or, or even in your communications in the negotiation and how that influences the outcome? Yeah, I think um, asking the right questions and listening carefully to the answers. I think there's a real skill in that and um, it's more what words people choose and what and how they phrase things that really tells the genuine truth of the whole situation. So when buyers ask a question, what they hear is what the agent answers them. Mm. What we hear is what the agent wants us to know and what they're trying to elude, but we're also hearing what they're not saying and we're also reading between the lines and we're getting the truth. Um, yeah. So that comes from, um, I guess, experience and um, knowing the types of things that agents say to be evasive and to avoid actually coming out with the whole truth. Um, and in regards to reading people, 
very, very easy to read other buyers at auction. And I think it's a really good skill to learn if you if you are buying property on a regular basis and attending auctions on your own. Practicing and honing that skill of reading people will be a great advantage. And one of one of the ways that it becomes an advantage is if you're reading the state of play accurately, you can pull out of a of competing at auction and let the other person win the auction rather than comp- continue to compete against them and push the price up. It's very, very obvious at the beginning of an auction, usually 90% of the time, you can see who's going to win, the, who is going to be the ultimate person who walks away with the property. So starting to practice that skill, you can watch, um, you know, gavel online and start watching auctions online and see if you can pick the traits and the body language and the tonality and how people are behaving at auction. And then you'll start to see little patterns of behavior that's revealing in an auction setting. Um, So hopefully that's a good tip that people can take away with and and start practicing. That's fantastic. I actually, uh, I'd hate to commit to this because it sounds like probably more technical work than I'm capable of, but I'd love to love to look at one of those maybe with a live Zoom or something and get some insights from you on what's happening. I think there's so much wisdom that you could share there, but yeah, gavel online, I'll have to check that out myself. But yeah. That would be interesting just to see who I think are the movers and shakers and who's going to win. It's just another thing that us property nerds can do all day Saturday when we're <laughs> actually out in the field watching auctions live. <laughs> there, there you go. If, it, if it's not enough to be your nine to five, it can be your after hours as well. It can be, yes, because they, uh, they do replay them. So you can, you can log on at any time. <laughs> Beautiful. Check it out. And uh, on your website, I wanted to to flag a couple of things that I guess people engage you to sort out. You, you I guess, phrase them as nine common challenges and they are around the property. Is it a lemon? Am I going to pay too much? I don't have time to look. My negotiation skills aren't really there. I don't have any experience bidding. There's an unlevel playing field, bait pricing, trick photography. And a few of those areas for me stand out as as a place where buyers agents can make a big, uh, big difference. Bait pricing was one I wanted to zero in on. Now I know there's been some legislation changes, and I think some people got some slaps on the wrist about underpricing, and that's a difficult one for me to understand because back in the day when I was sort of a bit more tapped into real estate, it was all about the vendors being overpromised what they could get for their property. And then, of course, that agent wins the listing and then they bash them on their head saying, mm. oh, the market's slowed down and blah, blah, blah. But but people are pricing things under market value. Why are they doing that and how are they getting the listings doing that? Yeah, look, it is an interesting, it, 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 an interesting scenario. It plays out more in Melbourne than any other state in Australia. Um, so... With the bait pricing, with the vendors that you mentioned, there are still agents who will go in and overvalue, overinflate the value of a property to win the listing. So that definitely still happens. And um, then there are agents who will go in and give the vendors a reality check on price and actually keep their keep their expectations extremely low. So when they surpass the expectations, the agent comes out looking exceptionally like, you know, they've done an exceptional job of the campaign. So yeah. it happens on both sides of the equation. 
um, with the legislative changes that have come in, um, we have seen it's complicated things. So buyers can't, so before the legislation changes came in, buyers could, once they had been on the ground enough to see consistently uh, what was happening, they would apply either a 10 or 15% on top of the the top of the range on the pricing in Melbourne. Yep. Whereas now buyers would be making a mistake to do that because there are agents who are absolutely 100% appropriately pricing the property and their price range is spot on. And so if you came in and put 10 or 15% on top of that, then you're going to dismiss a property that is actually within your price range, but because you're applying outdated thinking to the listing, then you're thinking it's going to go well beyond what your budget allows. So I think buyers have to be very careful not to do that. Um, and then conversely, it's still happening where, where things are underquoted and there are listings that are quoted too high. And so what it's actually done is created more confusion, I think, in the marketplace. And it's a, it's an area where I can now add even more value to my clients because I can look at the property and give them an accurate assessment of what the property is worth and also what the property is likely to sell for and how competitive it will be. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because I guess a lot of the time people engage you and you're zeroing in on a property, but sometimes it's it's the right thing to do by the client to let that property go. And I'm sure that that's a difficult, I guess, relationship or conversation to have. But your job is to make sure that they're not overpaying, which is obviously one yeah. of the points and one of the reasons people are uh, afraid of, of representing themselves. Yeah, look, I think, look, I, I have knowingly overpaid for property personally myself um, in the past and it has it has saved me a lot of money and it has made me a lot of money. So I'm not opposed to a buyer stretching themselves and paying a little bit more than what on paper a property is probably would be valued at in a very balanced market. But a part of the equation in determining what, you know, when you should stretch yourself, there's a few factors that go into that. So we discuss those things with the client so that they can make an informed decision. And at the end of the day, it's their decision, what they pay. And it's at least they've got clarity and certainty over, can we replace this property for them? Does this property have attributes that are very, very difficult to replicate elsewhere? Will this property outperform other options in the marketplace? And if so, why is that? So these are all of the things that we work through with the buyer. Sometimes buyers are on a very, very tight budget and uh, if lending options are restricted, we have to be very mindful of valuation shortfalls. So there's a whole picture that we weigh up during our pre-auction meetings with clients and that week leading into an auction is extremely busy for us behind the scenes. We'll probably speak to the agent anywhere between three to ten times just in that week alone. Yeah, I made the mistake of uh, I think there was a, a buyer's agent that I – suggested a catch-up to and they said, oh, I have an auction at 12. I'm like, oh, we can catch up at 9.30 or something. They're like, no, Mike, you don't know how this works. I don't just 
I don't just show up and throw a gavel in there. And I had to sort of profusely apologise for sort of bringing the whole industry into disrepute. Um, I, I have since learned my lesson that there's a lot that goes into it. I want to um, I want to ask you about the unlevel playing field. Certainly, I wouldn't like to be bidding at auction against yourself. I think I'd be terrified and I'd be making little twitches and nervous moves and you would read me like a cheap book. But can you give some examples where experts like yourself really dominate the negotiation or the auction as opposed to someone that's a rookie? What, what, how do you outmaneuver people? Mm. Are there any particular examples or things you can think of to share there? Yeah, look, um, we can influence the uh, auction sometimes, but we can't always influence the auction, um, and that's the honest truth. So I don't like to ever put a false representation out there for people to have unrealistic expectations of our powers because we do have some but we're not superheroes every single day of the week um so yeah look I think depending on the demographic that we're up against will greatly depend on if we have any influence in an auction perfect example um on the weekend I was representing a client we uh, valued the property and took into account the, the the market movements and the interest in the property and set an appropriate budget that property went 15% over what a fair valuation for the property would be. And the reason for that is there was a downsizer on the property. Now, a downsizer probably has sold their home for, in, in that market, they probably sold their home for $1.4 million, $1.6 million, and they're trying to downsize and then retain cash for, to live off for the rest of their life. So in that yep. instance, they don't need to borrow money. They're paying cash. So valuation shortfall is not relevant and they've got a lot more cash than a first home buyer or an investor is going to spend on the same asset. So in that scenario, there is absolutely nothing we can do to change the outcome of that auction. Conversely, if we're up against first home buyers who are particularly nervous and are filled with doubt and emotion around the purchase, um, there are a few things that we can do to I uh, don't like to say it, but to intimidate and to uh, shake the first home buyer, uh, shake their confidence. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there are definitely techniques that we can, we can lean on. Um, and I think when we come to private negotiations, we've got even more control over that process and even more uh, tools in our toolbox that we can lean on. It sounds a bit nasty, doesn't it? But I'm sure you don't necessarily relish other people missing out, but you're engaged by your client to fulfill their brief and look after them. And if that first homeowner sort of misses out because of what you've done, then you'll be quite happy to help them as well, I presume. Yeah, look, it's not something that, you know, we're not out to, um, I personally don't take um, satisfaction out of completely dominating or, um, or, having somebody miss out um but i'm there to do a job for my client my client is my number one priority yeah now you're based in melbourne of course are there particular suburbs that you specialize in or do you sort of chase the fundamentals when you're working with investors for certain pockets within a greater area in melbourne yeah, look, over time, um, my search areas have broadened. Every year they broaden. And the reason for that is because prices and demographic shifts occur on the ground. And, you know, once upon a time, my target suburbs for a $900,000 brief, a $900, brief um, are no longer relevant today 
and those $900,000 suburbs are now $1.2 million suburbs and I now need to find new areas at that 900 price point. So as a result of that um, and over the years, my uh, breadth of experience and exposure in many markets has increased. So every year it increases further and further. Once you have the, the knowledge of a suburb, you don't lose it. Those streets that are your prime streets usually always stay your prime street streets. The areas that are no-go zones sometimes eventually become a go zone. Um, yep. But the knowledge, like you keep that knowledge, so you can flip back into a suburb that you haven't purchased in for 12 months and pick up your relationships with your agents, your area knowledge. You have to do a, a um, jump on a few of your databases and you know get up to speed with a few uh, statistics. But you take that knowledge with you for the rest of your life. So yeah, my areas have expanded quite widely, and I purchase mostly in the uh, inner north corridor, inner west corridor all down Bayside, down onto the Mornington Peninsula and out into the southeastern suburbs. And we'll probably be starting to purchase a lot more in the outer northern areas as well, just purely due to uh, price creep. Yeah, yeah, okay. What are your thoughts on the Melbourne market in in general and and even, I guess, as a macro thing for 2020, 2021? I know this is a a painful crystal ball question mm. that I ask people, but um, the listeners demand it. Yeah, well, look, I think based on buyer inquiry that that myself and my colleagues are receiving on a daily basis and um, the number of people at open homes, the interest rates, current interest rate environment, I think it's looking very, very strong. We've recovered in Melbourne quite quickly. Um, generally, we recover over an 18-month period, but I think we've recovered over a 12-month period, um, which is not reflected yet in the statistics, but it is what we're seeing on the ground. And generally, sometimes we have a year or two of good growth after recovery. Sometimes we recover back to um, the peak of the market and then we sit for a few years. I don't see a sitting. I see that we've got strong demand, still not, not enough stock on the market. And uh, I think we're going to be in for a pretty strong year this year and potentially the year after, providing we don't have any massive global issues that affect our economy. Yes, and I referenced one of those uh, earlier in the program with the corona thing. Hopefully that's uh, not an example of that, but I guess that's the sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Could Can you give us your thoughts on the best ways for investors to be building their portfolio in the current market as it, as it stands with you know low interest rates but not a lot of stock and and probably a market that's going to be fairly strong for the next couple of years. Yeah, so I think um, the, the same principles apply today as they do at any other time, but now is definitely a great time for investors to take advantage of our low interest rate environment because uh, holding costs are a lot lower at the moment than they have been. Um, so I think building that foundation, getting that foundation right, and I think getting the foundation right involves if you're planning on building a portfolio, it's important to have a portfolio um, specialist uh, mortgage broker who really understands how to strategize your lending for multiple purchases. And then you can also tack on to that 
a savvy buyer's advocate who's either buying around the country or is buying in the state that you're looking at purchasing in and then you get a referral to a few other buyer advocates in other states and you keep swapping your states so that you're taking advantage of that cash flow versus capital growth and not to say that they both can't exist at the same time in some instances they do um, but just looking at the diversification of your assets um, secondly is to have a plan uh, for your purchases and the plan is your strategy are you going to be a cash flow investor are you going to be a balanced investor or are you going to be a capital growth investor? So a little bit of planning needs to go um, to go into that. So understanding your own cash flows and to be very specific, um, know how much per month you can contribute to a portfolio of property. So if you've got 4000 in savings, perhaps you want to uh, contribute 2000 maximum for your entire portfolio and then you need to make a decision am i am i going to use that money on that shortfall and when i say shortfall what i mean is the difference between all of your outgoing expenses and what you're getting in for rent so it's what you're digging into your own pocket to pay towards your investment portfolio um, some people can max themselves out with that uh, with just one purchase so i think people need to be i guess think of if you think about the end first, then you work backwards and you create your plan from the bottom up. Um, and getting with the right mortgage broker and I think the right team around you can certainly be a help. And if you if you don't want to pay for professionals to assist you with that, then getting exposure to some really, really, really great minds uh, on the forums who have invested for 20 years and have got so much knowledge to give um, you know, you can spend a couple of years kind of doing your research on forums and just being very, very careful about who you're listening to and, you know, making sure you're listening to the right people and you don't confuse yourself. I love it. That's really, really sound advice. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't add anything more to that if I tried. Um, how do people get in touch with you, Lisa? And also this book, which um, in reference to Melissa's question at the beginning, uh, how to, to select a buyer's agent, obviously there's some inf info in that. Mm. So could you let us know where we can find that when it's coming out and how people can chat to you if they want to speak to you about property? Yeah. Uh, so our, our website is parkerbuyeradvocates.com.au. Um, the book ha is is due to be published September, October this year. So what I'll do um, for your listeners is just pop a page up on the website where people can uh, register their interest in purchasing the book once it is available. Um, so I'll, I'll get that organised today. And, um, <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, so that would be the best place to find us first and foremost. Awesome. Now... If there's one piece of advice that you could impart, and we've shared some lots of gold already, but if you had to pick one, what would it be? One. The one that's coming to mind is to be very careful about who you listen to. Um, there's a lot of well-meaning family and friends who want to, want to help in your journey. And sometimes people are very well-meaning and, and very uh, solid in their convictions and their ability to help, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually have the experience to back up the, up the help. So I think choosing who you're going to listen to is really important, is really important when you're purchasing a property. And if your friends and family are giving you advice, I think it's really important to dig deep and see 
um, really what experience they have. If mum and dad have only ever bought two properties in their life, they might know a little bit, but they're not experienced enough to give really good, deep advice based on lots of experience. And I think one key, one thing that you can probably um, take with you to uh, to determine who to listen to and who not to listen to, the person asks you lots of questions about your situation before giving advice that's a good indication that they've got experience enough to know they need to ask you several questions before they give you very specific advice that's for your circumstance. If they're just giving you blanket advice without asking you anything, you could probably take that advice with a little bit of grain of salt. I think we'll call that two for the price of one. But, uh, though, the, yeah, a, a fabulous addition. I think great advice. It's been a real pleasure having you on, Lisa. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom today. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed being here and um, look forward to catching up again soon. Cheers. Thanks.